What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the HR Impact Show. I'm CT from Engage Rocket, and I'm your host for today. And today, we're going to be talking about honoring the service, engagement strategies, and leadership competencies to build elite teams. To help us explore this topic is Courtney Peterson. Courtney Peterson is the Vice President, Chief Diversity Officer, and Chief HR Officer at Edison Electric Institute. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Thank you, CT. I'm really glad to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Now, for those who don't know what Edison Electric Institute does, do you mind just walking through what, what it is that you do? So the Edison Electric Institute is a trade association. We're based in Washington, D.C. And as a trade association, what we do is we represent our member companies. And our member companies happen to be all of the U.S. investor-owned electric companies. So our member companies are really on the forefront of leading the clean energy transition. They also are responsible for providing electricity to over 250 million Americans. They operate in all 50 states as well as the District of Columbia. As a trade association, we provide public policy leadership. We engage in convening. We provide essential conferences and forums and thought leadership um, and really bring our industry together. So we're very proud. Our motto is power by association. I love that. And that's very close to my heart as well. I, I do believe uh, the transition towards cleaner energy sources is such an important one. I'm so glad that, that you guys are, are championing that across the industry. So how did diversity get a seat at the table at C-Suite? And it's great that you're representing both sides. Yeah, I'm really proud to hold the position, CT. And it's a really interesting and unique role to hold for EEI because I get to serve in that role um, internally for the amazing employees that we have at EEI. We have nearly 200 employees um, that do this work on behalf. I get to know them, to be a champion for them. And I also have the opportunity to work with our member companies. So I work closely with the chief HR officers and chief diversity officers within our member companies on the issues that they're dealing with, which many of the issues that they're dealing with are some of the issues I'm dealing with as an internal practitioner. It's a lot of fun. I've been in HR for close to 25 years now. And conversations about diversity have always been a part of um, my practice area in HR. But I think that they've appropriately evolved over time. Uh, when I first started in the field, it was very much a conversation about diversity, about representation and just getting people into spaces where they perhaps were not represented. Those conversations have evolved in a beautiful, nuanced way over the last two decades, and especially over the last decade, to talk about the intersectionality of diversity, to talk about equity and inclusion and belonging. When I think about my role as a chief diversity officer, combined with being a chief HR officer, much of that conversation is in the space of equity and inclusion and belonging. That's really how I have seen um, this sort of this DEI diversity conversation evolve. In the right ways. I, I love how it is, it's carved out its own space next to HR, which sometimes you know, just gets lumped together and uh, you're expected to drive outcomes that way. 
Is this something that you drive across the industry as well, or is this mostly for EEI um, and then you influence how diversity looks like for the rest of the industry? I think first I would probably try to unpack what I'm doing internally as a leader within an organization. And chief diversity officers and chief HR officers have a number of important things in their portfolio that they're doing in service to the mission of an organization and in partnership with the employees and the leaders of the organization. So I have those day-to-day responsibilities. I work for a company that has a diversity council and employee resource groups and diversity goals that we're striving towards. As it relates to the industry, my role is really to bring together everyone into a common space to convene them to be able to talk about these issues and to bring together that thought leadership. So I can't, if by any means, claim to be leading the industry, but I would say definitely using the platform that is EEI, which is an incredible platform to bring people together and to do so in a proactive way around issues that are important um, and timely for our membership. We know that diversity and inclusion and equity have quite a large bearing on employee engagement. What does employee engagement mean to you? This is the area of um, where I could just go on for it and talk about, because I think what we're trying to create And design is an employee experience that is connective between the employee and the employer and the work. First and foremost, that starts with an organization being able to clearly state and demonstrate what its values are so that the right employees can find you, right? So that values alignment is incredibly important. What is the organization about? Obviously, organizations want to be profitable and and they want to achieve their mission, but what is it going to feel like to work there? What is that experience going to be like? And I think what employees, what talent is looking for are a positive work environment. They want to work in places where us and operation are a key part of what's happening in the workplace. They want to work in environments that value human beings. And I'm not a person, though I work in HR, I don't view humans as resources. That talent is a gift to the organization and the organization should be working in partnership to reach those shared outcomes. So I think being clear about what the expectations are in the role is important and will help foster employee engagement. And so employees need to understand what their role is, what their purpose is for being there, what their responsibilities are, and how that contributes to the overall goals of the organization. Feedback conversations are really important to help drive employee engagement. Some of the simplest things that managers can do is meet with their employees and listen to them and to really hold space for the ideas that they want to bring to the table, the challenges that they say that they are having, and to try to help provide resources. Um, I tell my team, and I oversee large teams now at this point in my career, my role is to be here to be able to ensure that you have the resources that you need and to remove the obstacles that are in your way so that you can be successful. And so I really view myself as a leader who is in service to the folks that I am leading. And I tell them all the time, it's not about me. It's about you guys. I try to take a holistic approach to this employee engagement conversation. I try to look at the the teams that I am leading as individual human beings. And and those human beings are bringing a whole lot to work. They're bringing the, the totality of who they are in their lives. So taking the time to get to know and build relationships is foundational. Whenever I start Any new position as a chief of HR, I spend a lot of time listening and just getting to know people and understanding what are the things that led you to end up here? And why do you choose to work here and not someplace else? What is it about this place that makes it special? What is it about this mission that drives you? And then understanding who they are as human beings is most important. If leaders can lean more into building those relationships and taking the time for those relationships, I think that it can help to improve all the business outcomes that you could potentially list in any business book. In our experience, one of the things that 
is most challenging is as HR leaders, we believe this. We know this to be true. The data shows it qualitatively. The fundamental piece that nurtures that connected tissue is actually leaders and managers. Absolutely. And you can have all the data in the world to show how climate change is happening, but everyone believes it's not my problem. It's someone else's problem. Or sometimes you just deny that it's happening as well. It's not that important. There are lots of other things. And to a certain extent, employee engagement is a little bit like that. There's tons of data around that. Everyone knows having a great engaged team is fantastic, but tell them, put aside half an hour a week, go talk to your people. They're like, oh man, I got no time. I think that this is a conversation, like many conversations in organizations where it matters what's happening at the top. The tone at the top really matters. As a leader who, for a long time, myself, was a reluctant leader, right? I did not want to be in the spotlight or on stages. If you talk to the 25-year-old version of me, she would have said, I never would want to do any of those things, right? When I began to understand the impact of having power, the impact of being a leader means that you can actually help make other people's situations better, that you can actually help influence and drive change. You can become a change agent, that you need power in order to do that. Then it became more of a, I understood it intellectually. So I was able to develop the skills to step into the leadership role because I was a very shy kid and an introvert. So really didn't see myself leading. I think the positional authority of the president or the CEO or the leaders of a company is really important because that individual is able to not only set the tone with their own leadership, but they get to make decisions about who else gets to be leaders. If it's an organization that really values people, they are going to hold accountable the leaders for ensuring that's part of their practice, that you don't get rewarded and promoted for being a bully, right? You get rewarded and promoted for having outcomes and achieving results and also valuing people and getting work done through people and growing people and having those relationships um, and thinking about the fact that your leadership does cast this long shadow and you're always on stage when you step into that leadership role. There are people out there who maybe don't necessarily want to be people leaders, but they want to be individual contributors. And there's a need for individuals like that. But if an individual is not sold on this idea of wanting to create safe and inclusive work environments or wanting to foster a culture of collaboration or wanting to recognize and appreciate the contributions of people across the team, or more importantly, I think most importantly, leading by example, those people should not have the privilege of being in the leadership position. I think that to whom much is given, much is required. There are a lot of wonderful benefits of being a leader. We should be held to a high level of accountability. Yeah, absolutely. And in HR, sometimes it's difficult to be the one that decides who's a leader and who's not. You sit in a privileged position to be able to influence those conversations. So how do you go about exercising that soft power and laying that foundation for the connective tissue that builds up employee engagement, which is leaders and managers uh, that are selected within an organization? I think it goes back to the power of building relationships. When you're sitting in the position of, of chief of HR or chief diversity officer, you more than likely have access to some of the most powerful people in the organization. You have their ear, as it said, right? It's a big privilege and it's a big responsibility to be able to influence the decision making of someone who might be the ultimate decider for how things happen in an organization. So I would say I take that responsibility really seriously. 
I try to not be impulsive. I try to be thoughtful and think about the advice I want to provide. I make sure that I do my homework, my research, and I'm able to provide data-informed recommendations whenever possible. The data-informed recommendations are just as important as some of the things that are, that are my intuition or my sense of things too, because I'm a highly intuitive person. I'm a relational leader. So sometimes I would say to my CEO, like, my sense of this is ABC123, or my observation of this is ABC123. And that combined with perhaps any data-informed guidance I can provide. You build trust with people one interaction at a time. The way that I'm able to build trust within organizations is through doing what I say I'm going to do, following through on my commitments, being credible, and being discreet. Those things are really important in a chief of HR. And so you're able to build trust if you consistently do those things. If you consistently don't do those things, you will not be able to build trust and you will lose it quickly. I try to get into organizations and really understand what the mission is, what the business is, what the work is of the organization, and not operate in HR from some sort of a tower. I try to get in there and really understand and walk around and ask questions and go out and see what is the work of the organization. In the case of EEI, we do a lot of convenings and conferences and meetings. And so it's very important to me that I'm there, that I'm seeing what is the work that we're doing, that I'm in the board meetings and hearing what the concerns are of our board. I'm listening to our employees to understand what the challenges are of executing their work or what their greatest joys are of doing their work. And if I roll back to when I was a leader in a school many years ago, you would catch me on the sidelines of sporting events. You would see me immersing myself in the business of the organization to understand it. Because how can I understand the challenges of the people as the chief people officer if I'm not able to bear witness to some of the things that they have to deal with in their jobs? I think that level of commitment is very helpful in ensuring that a chief of HR can be successful and impactful because you have to be able to build trust. You have to be viewed as credible. You have to be someone that people feel comfortable talking to and telling hard things to, or perhaps things that maybe you're the first person they're ever saying it to. And so holding space for people um, and being able to be that listening ear are critical. And those are the, some of the things that I rely on day to day. Wow, it's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR impact. And now back to the show. Let's take a concrete example where there are two people who are in line for a leadership job. One who's a really strong individual contributor doesn't really work with that well with the team, but you know that this person can get the job done. And then mm -hmm. there's someone else who's a little bit less technically competent, but he's got that ability to rally uh, people around them. And when you talk to the bosses, sometimes they would feel like, okay, I want that technically competent person in their role and the person who's more of that people person, not so much. Mm. How would you approach that conversation with the leader and convince them? It's a really great example of situations that I'm confronted with on any given day. And it's interesting during the pandemic, my children got to get a little bit of a sense of like what I do for work because I was on Zoom calls all day. And they're like, this is what you do all day? You just help people solve their problems all day? This is what I do all day. I would look for the third way. So one of the things in my career that I really lean on a lot is having become a leadership coach. When you're a leadership coach, you begin to learn how to resist binary thinking, right? That there's just an on or off switch. 
that there's just a one or the other way of doing things. I'm not saying that sometimes you don't have to make those kind of decisions in life. You do. But there are times in leadership where I say, let me think of a third way. Maybe there's a new way to do this. That's not just one person gets it and the other person doesn't. Like maybe there could be a way I could suggest that those two people could co-lead or could work together, that maybe there's a way to structure a team around people's strengths and let them both be able to do what they do best every day. I would look for opportunities to open up that kind of a conversation with whoever the ultimate decision maker was to see. Because I think every individual, every human deserves to have whatever their potential unleashed to the greatest possibility. And not everybody wants to lead people. It could be possible that one of the two people in that scenario, I really don't want to lead the team. It's not my thing. If someone tells me that they don't want to lead a team, I would not force them to lead a team. I think that that's that yeah. this. And though I, I try to use some of my coaching tricks on them to unpack what's going on there. Is it, do you really not want to do it? Or is that fear? Because I was one of those reluctant leaders who was like, I don't want to do it. Get somebody else to do it. And then ultimately I had the kind of mentors around me who were just like, no, like you have that thing. We need you to lead this team or lead this project. And I said, okay, I'll try. Sometimes people just need encouragement, coaching, mentorship. They need someone to believe in them. But then other times people are like, it's not my thing. I don't really want to do it. I think that I have the ability to learn just about anything under the sun and I don't want to be a CFO. So if you're, if I'm being offered that job, I'm like, no, thank you. So you have to honor that people know what's best for them. And that's a, another key premise of, of coaching is that people generally know what's best for them. And my job as coach is not to tell you or be directive about what you should do, but it's to help you dig deep to unpack what was best for you. That requires some really good conversations, some powerful questions to help people get to what's really happening under the surface. What do you think of all these talent management frameworks out there? We have these high potentials in our organization based on A, B, and C criteria, and we want to push them up for leadership. And this person then becomes a better leader because of this particular framework that we're using, or there are certain competencies that you track. Is this something that you lean on heavily or do you find that these are really just guys and, and ultimately it's still a, a decision that you're going to make with your gut? I think that it's science and art. I think that is truly leadership. There are a number of ways that you can rely on a number of great models. I'm an avid reader of business books. I devote a lot of time in developing my coaching practice as a leader because I think one of the things that has really helped me become a better leader is uh, learning how to listen like a coach and operate like a coach. So the difference is before, as a leader, I would just run around and solve people's problems for them. I would say, oh, bring me your hardest problem. I'll tell you what to do. But I think when you apply a coaching style, you become more of a listener and you become more of a partner to help that person figure out how to solve their own problem because they have the answer. When I say art and science, I think that there is great science in leadership. There are things to understand, like models and frameworks that you can look to. The art of it is a lot of the intuition and a lot of the, the interpersonal skills that you need to develop to be able to be a human-centric leader. And I also think that is what the workforce is demanding of us. I came up in a time early in my career where these were not the conversations that were being had. I'm a member of Gen X, and Gen X was told Come in, start at the bottom, don't ask any questions, be happy you're here, right? And I am now leading teams of the next generations that orient to work very differently. It's really important as leaders that we continue to evolve our toolkit and our skill set in leadership. I can't lead and manage the same way I did 15, 20 years ago because I have different people in front of me who have different expectations and they also bring different skill sets and amazing superpowers to the workplace. I rely heavily on the diversity of representation of generations in the workplace because 
everyone brings different amazing things. It also is incumbent upon a leader to continue to grow in their practice and to remain curious, to listen to podcasts, to read books, to look at ways of how am I going to manage this hybrid workforce? I've never done this before. The conversations that we see every day about return to office and the fights around return to office, I wonder if some of those conversations have to do with leaders who maybe just don't want to evolve the way that they lead and manage. Maybe if they had a willingness to do that, they could meet employees halfway and maybe they could retain people as opposed to this constant revolving door of people leaving organizations. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I do remain infinitely curious and I try to ask the right questions. So when you approach a coaching conversation, whether it's with a leader or with someone in your team, is there some kind of framework that you use in approaching that conversation? The model that I think I go to most often is a model that's been around for a long time. It is a coaching model is the GROW model, G-R-O-W. It's just like a tried and true framework to work through a conversation and starting off by getting clarity around what the goal is, right? What are we trying to achieve here? What is the ultimate objective? And beginning with the end in mind, and that goes back to some old Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I teach part-time at Georgetown, an introductory HR class. I still talk about that book every semester with my intro um, HR grad students. And so starting with that goal, helping to identify and set a clear specific goal was really important. So that would be the G. I think understanding the current reality, like where are we at now? What is the current situation that you're facing? What's happening? What have you already tried so far? What are the obstacles that you're facing? That's the next layer of how I would move through a conversation uh, with someone that I was endeavoring to coach on my team. And that really helps to unpack what's potentially getting in the way. Classic coaching question, like what's getting in the way? Because a lot of times when we feel stuck, it's because we think that something's not possible because there's some sort of obstacle in front of us. Well, what would it look like if that obstacle were removed? What's possible? Then I think you move into the conversation about what the options are. This is where you can get really creative with someone who's potentially stuck on your team or maybe underperforming. You begin to brainstorm. You begin to say, okay, how can we apply our creative thinking? How can we be generative here and thinking of what some of the possible actions are that we can take forward? And so you could ask things like, well, what would you do if you had no constraints? In a one-on-one coaching session, this looks like, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? Because you can sometimes get some of those most creative ideas from people if they just feel like, okay, let me just be creative here. Then the final step is a way forward. So how are we going to move forward? What's the action plan based on what we just discussed and helping that individual to define the clear steps forward? What's the next thing that you need to do is something I often say to when I have my direct reports in front of me and maybe they're feeling overwhelmed. Oh my goodness, Courtney, this thing is so big. Like, how am I going to do it? I don't know what to do. I'm so overwhelmed helping them think about what's the very next thing you're going to do, because sometimes you just need some forward momentum. So the way forward is an important part to cap off the conversation and to help them understand and remind themselves that I can take one step forward. I'm not stuck. Um, My feet are not stuck in the mud um, and I can move forward. It's a simple model. It's a tried and true model. And just being able to think about how it applies to one's leadership is really important. I I think it's really important that leaders make the time for these kinds of conversations. It, It really is disappointing when I hear employees who might be leaving an organization and they're frustrated and, and they say, no one ever even took the time to talk to me. No one was ever curious about what I wanted to do here. That's not good leadership. We have to do better. The GROW model is such an oldie, but it's a goodie because it, it survived the test of time. It forces you as a coach and as a leader not to be prescriptive. 
about a solution. It forces you to ask questions so that it's generative and then the conversation becomes generative rather than dictative. If I could summarize, it's goals. Uh, so cover what the goals are, look at what the reality is, what are the options that we have, and then work on the way forward. Such, such a strong model, uh, something I was introduced to 15 years ago, it's still relevant today, and I love that you're using it. So if anyone wanted to follow up with you to ask more about some of these concepts, what's the best way for them to reach out? Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Courtney Chisholm Peterson, and I also have a small coaching practice. I have a full-time job, so I can't do a lot with coaching clients privately, but I do have a couple. And so my coaching business is called Lotus Leadership Coaching. And I chose the lotus flower because the lotus flower grows up through the mud and the dirt and to become this beautiful flower in the sunlight. To me, I think that is so much like the human journey. Sometimes we have to go through the mud and the muck, but gosh, it's so beautiful too. So lotusleadershipcoaching.com is my website. You can find me on LinkedIn. I also am on Instagram as Lotus Leadership Coaching, and I would love to connect with your listeners. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for hanging with us today, Courtney. For those of you listening, hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, head on over to www.engagerocket.co slash hrimpact, all one word, and catch this episode and more. So thanks so much for listening. My name is CT, and I hope to see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.